This is Office Hours, the show for sharing experiences and stories in security, risk management, compliance, and audit. Brought to you by Galvanize. Now, here's your host, Dan Zitting. Hey, everybody. I'm Dan Zitting. Today, I have Phil Lim with me. And Phil claims himself to be the greatest ACL user on the planet. Uh, Phil, thanks for joining. And could you actually tell us what your real job title is? Yeah, thanks, Dan. Uh, no problem. And yes, that's the greatest ACL scripter in the world. Oh, greatest ACL, ACL scripter in the world. I'm sorry, you're right. That's okay. Uh, my actual title here at Galvanize is the Senior Product Manager of Robotics. Um, and yeah, glad to be here on the podcast. All right. So, Mr. Greatest Scripter in the World, today the topic is finding cash fast. And with the backdrop of being finding cash fast using data analytics and continuous monitoring, particularly in, of course, financial-oriented processes. And as the greatest scripter in the world, you have some lessons learned, having done this lots of times in lots of different kinds of organizations, and you're going to teach us about lessons learned today. Yes, 100%. But before we get into that, Dan, I just wanted to share with you and, and maybe ask you a question when was the last time you went through your credit card statement in detail to clean out your old subscriptions? Uh, 1997. Ooh, okay. That's been a while. Um, just in the current climate, <laughs> yeah, I was worried about maybe it's losing Maybe my- it's a little more recent than that, but certainly not in the last, uh, probably, it's been many, many months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, I was worried about losing my job due to COVID. Um, so I went through and made sure that I cleaned up my credit card statement for any unused gym memberships, uh, unused software. Like I've got Amazon Prime on my credit card, but so does my wife. And that's just a double dip, a double payment that we don't need to be making in uh-huh. this current climate. So I would recommend you do the same, Dan. Although, yeah, I guess you, you're, yeah, we're, we, we were all worried about, about making sure that we've got enough cash to get through the current crisis and businesses are, are much the same at this point, right? Perhaps that's the reason we selected this topic today. We're seeing lots of interest coming back and in, in finding up op- using redirecting time into finding uh, potential cash savings. And we're putting together a bit of a package to help do that uh, more quickly. And thus our, our expert Phil going to teach us how to do it most efficiently. Yeah, exactly. So for individuals like you or me, if, if I lose my job, you lose your job. It's it's the difference between being able to weather it by dipping into the savings or or having to take out another financing loan on, on our houses. But for companies, it means saving people's livelihoods. It means sometimes just plain surviving. And uh, it's pretty big impact out there. Uh, the ACFE, the, um, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, they report... Uh, they, they send out a report every year called the Report to the Nations, and they estimate that 5% of revenue is lost due to fraud every year. And for each instance of fraud, there's an average of 14 months that it goes before it gets detected. And the median amount that gets listed per fraud is about $8,300. So you can do the math. That's just for a single instance of fraud, potentially across all of your business. There's a there's a ton of both opportunity for for recovery and and just risk out there for uh, organizi- organizations who aren't 
aren't looking at Well, this. and that's just fraud. We're going to talk about waste and, uh, well, yeah, waste, abuse, errors, uh, lots of other ways to find cash too beyond just fraud. But given that, that at least according to the ACFE, even 5% of total revenue may be lost to fraud, there's clearly an opportunity to find cash. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. That's a really good point. And that goes into one of the first engagements that I did at ACL way back over 12, 13 years ago. Well, let me ask you this, uh, actually, before you oh, go that yeah. far, before you jump into that one, I just want to get, I, I want to get a sense from you because I've done a lot of these, uh, I've done a lot of these engagements too, um, both, of course, here at Galvanize and um, in prior life. And let me ask you this, have you ever gone into one where, uh, have you ever gone into a customer situation where looking at a couple of uh, of key areas have you ever had one where you found zero dollars of never, of never, not once? Exactly, not once. I have never once been in one where we couldn't identify uh, a a substantial amount of some some combination of fraud, waste, and abuse. Yeah, and 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 not only that, but well, anyway, we'll we'll get into this in a little bit. But it's not just finding it, but um, it's around changing your processes to avoid it in the future, because. When I was working on that first engagement mm-hmm. uh, over over ten years ago, now um, one of the things that we learned was y- you want to like. There's a lot of e- a lot of finance and CFOs will say, "Hey, we don't need a program like this. We've already got our automated controls in our ERP. You're not going to find anything." And, and time and time again, like you said, every time we go in, we find something. And so I think there's a false sense of security when organizations implement ERPs. Uh, because they, the ERP will throw up a red flag and say, hey, hold on, you've already entered this invoice. Uh, but it'll only do that if you actually plug that invoice to that same vendor. Right. So it's not a cash example, but just even in the last month, I had an organization tell me there's no point in ever looking at uh, evaluating whether all journal entries were approved by somebody different who posted them, somebody different than who posted them. That may supposedly never be worth looking at because the automated controls in the ERP system prevent that. It turns out, well, actually, over half of all manual journal entries were posted and approved by the same person at this organization because when you click through the user interface of the ERP system and do journal entries one at a time, <laughs> it prevents them. But guess what happens when you bulk upload them? Uh, it doesn't a, check. Through a different transaction. Yep, it doesn't check. And so similarly with um, similarly with invoices and some of these other issues that we're going to talk about that lead to recoverable savings, the automated controls inside an ERP system are not nearly as effective as most organizations think. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it really comes down, a lot of the cases, around A, how clean your vendor master is, and B, you know what are your processes to deal with unusual business scenarios? Like when you get an invoice from a vendor that doesn't have an invoice number on it, what does your team do? Is there a consistent way that they deal with that? And what do they do when they have to pay an invoice that has the exact same number or they like, do they put an append a little dash a on there or something like that? And perhaps just even foundationally is, is, is there anybody like you, Phil, at the organization who's creative enough to go in and ask the question to look for some of these things? Exactly. So let's, let's start with an example. Um, tell me about this first case that you, uh, tell me about your first experience here. Um, and let's walk through let's walk through what the goal was, what you were looking for. Um, give me a little intel on how you did it and what the outcome was. 
Sure. So this first case was with a, about a roughly $10 billion telecom company. And of course, as a telecom company, they have a ton of purchasing and service requisitions, just a ton of business going in and out with uh, both contractors, vendors, third parties. And uh, as such, they had a lot of risk in their duplicate in their invoices and, and accounts payable. And so they they had a choice. They could either go in and clean up their vendor master one time and then try and, and deal with that. But that's a that's a massive multi-month effort that doesn't necessarily bear fruit. And then as soon as you're done, it gets dirty again. Mm-hmm. So instead, they implemented detective controls with continuous controls monitoring data analytics to look across a spectrum of about seven different ways of looking at duplicate invoices. So everything from matching um, invoice numbers and just cleaned invoice numbers, so looking at only the digits in invoice numbers, to vendor phone numbers, uh, vendor bank accounts, uh, vendor addresses, vendor names, uh, fuzzy match on names. So there was a constellation of about seven or eight different tests uh, that didn't overlap. That was the other key learning there was you don't want your tests overlapping and giving giving you the same results across multiple tests. Otherwise, you're duplicating your own efforts while you're duplicating your duplicates. But that was uh, one of the key learnings out of that first engagement, which was you need to look across your vendors because your ERPs are not going to look across your vendors. And this is the best way to control for that risk is with detective controls. So something as simple as identifying duplicate payments, you implemented seven or eight different ways to identify those. Yeah. And in fact, now um, I've continued to accrue new ways of identifying duplicate payments. Uh, we're now up to about 12 uh, different subtests to identify a duplicate invoice. Okay, interesting. And so give me give me an example of what's the what's the simplest, easiest one to get started with? And how does it actually, what do you actually do? Walk me through the steps to run a test like that. Cool. To walk to do a test like that first, you need to grab your vendor data and you need to grab your accounts payable ledger. Um, you join that information together so that you have the, in, the the information from your invoice as well as your vendor all together into one. And then you look for essentially duplicates and differences across that data. So when you say yeah. grabbing your vendor master and your and your um, and and all the um, purchase data. You made that sound. You made that sound very, very easy. How complicated is doing that in reality? If I use a large and complex ERP system, say SAP. Well, well, uh, I mean, you can try and do that with SAP. I mean, you you might have some standard reporting that you can run out of SAP that will get you some of that data. But once you've pulled down your AP subledger, you're going to realize that you have hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of transactions to deal with that blow up Excel and then try to do a V lookup between that and your, your vendor. Right. Master, so even right? if I'm using, obviously we would advocate, I mean, we're biased. We're going to obviously advocate for using a tool, but say you're, you're using ACL robotics to pull that, the, that same, that same data, the, the, um, from SAP. Now, how complicated is it as far as knowing what, what data should I be accessing? How, like, how do I figure that? How do I decipher this? If I'm not an SAP, if I'm not an expert on SAP tables, well, if you're not an expert on SAP tables, you'll have to work with an internal ABAP team member, somebody who's uh, an SAP consultant, uh, perhaps to help you understand what data and what 
um, what tables to go after. Um, I mean, ideally, you'll already have a, a report in the system to pull out of. But um, yeah, and if you want to do something custom to pull down everything into one single file, you're going to have to work with an SAP consultant, which would which would cost you a whole bunch of money. Just and how about if I use ACL Robotics? Do you have any of these extracts standardized for me? Yeah, absolutely. So um, based off of all of our experience building out these programs for customers, we have the, the standard data tables and fields that you would need in order to perform the list of 12 tests that uh, I was mentioning previously. Yeah, okay. Okay, so now remind me again, what data was it that I needed? Great. Grab your vendor data, grab your invoice data, mm-hmm. connect them together. And then what you want to do is you want to look for cases where, for example, you've got the same amount on the same date to a different vendor, but with the same address. So oftentimes you'll have two different vendors in your ERP with the same address and you end up posting the same invoice across both of them. The system's not going to stop you from doing that, but you've just created a duplicate invoice in the system and then you end up paying both of them. So is this a common scenario where I have I paid an invoice that I had invoice number one two three four five, but I also paid invoice number zero 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 one two three four five, and that was to a vendor whose address was one two three capital E space Elm Street versus the uh, the the other vendor who had one two three East spelled out Elm Street. That sort of a scenario, how does, how do you, how do you, how do you, is, I'm leading you down the path to say that's the magic is identifying those kinds of permutations because that's what ERP systems miss, is it not? Exactly. So with, with the, with, with slight changes to the way that data is entered and tracked and recorded in your ERP, very easy to miss for the ERP to miss those matches. And with something like ACL Robotics, cleaning up that data, whether it's cleansing data addresses, whether it's cleansing invoice numbers, whether it's cleansing bank account numbers, names, um, or doing fuzzy matches, all of that is is logic that we've done many times before and and can help you identify those duplicates. Perfect. So in the example I just gave, we would have been looking for, we would have been looking for duplicate invoices based on, based on a fuzzy match of the invoice number and the address of the vendor that it went to. Um, That may or may not be a good one. That's probably not one of your 12, Phil, but you've identified 12 uh, optimized, shall we say, um, permutations by which to identify those sorts of things. Uh, in this case, going back to the the case study you shared, uh, eight of these were put in place at this particular organization. Uh, what happened next? What was uh, what came? What what popped out when you ran these? When you started running these eight examples, and what was the uh, what was the outcomes? Yeah, well, I actually, and that's a good point for this particular conversation, is. They got a ton of value out of these eight tests, but I was never privy to the follow-up conversation for this particular customer. At least I was too young, too early in my career to ask to follow up. Um, but I do know that this company did continue to use this detect set of detective controls for many years after that, and um, ultimately used as one of their their socks and reporting controls. Um, as, as part of that. So, ah, so it got to be an exercise that shifted from, and it was probably initially run, all kinds of stuff identified, um, actually found the cash, 
note the name Find Cash Fast. Uh, but as they then evolved it, they ran it over and over and over again, and in fact, to the point where it actually became the control. Exactly. So it was part of their um, process, and when we actually had to set up the system, they came back and said, hey, we need this to run on a particular day of the month before we close our books, because we need to make sure that we're not um, we're not paying these these invoices, letting them go out the door. Because as you know, it's a lot easier to keep the payments from going out the door than it is to try and call up your vendors and, and reclaim them. Right, right. Okay, that's an, that's an that's an interesting outcome. So eight different kinds of eight different eight different permutations of tests became the actual control. Um, that's an interesting outcome. Can you share with me another story where perhaps you do know a little bit more about what the outcomes were? Yeah, so uh, I'm going to shift a little bit to a, a materials manufacturer. Uh, this is a case where uh, we were setting up a, a, a set of not just looking at duplicate invoices, but potentially suspicious um, AP payments and invoices. And so one of the tests that we implemented there was to conduct a keyword match for high-risk keywords. Um, and of course, having been through the business in so many years, we've got this list of you know hundreds of keywords that we would generally get the client started off with. And one of the keywords that we included on that list is tuition. Because most of the time, if you're a materials manufacturer, uh, tuition is not one of your key materials inputs. So what this flagged when we ran, and we didn't, we weren't looking specifically for tuition, but when we ran their entire AP subledger against our keyword list, they found out that an employee was submitting their child's Harvard tuition as an invoice in the system. Ah, interesting. So uh, this ended up being a, 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 an, a, a case that they had to bring. I don't think they ended up letting that employee go, but there was some significant internal reprimanding. Um, and in addition, um, gave them the idea to include all the Ivy League schools as part of, because we didn't include all the names of the Ivy League schools as a high-risk keyword, but they decided to do that and also add in the names of the local private schools onto their suspicious keyword list um, as well. So when they subsequent runs of the analytics, they would identify if there were other employees that were so, using their... So so let me make sure I've heard this correctly. Somebody was running through their child's tuition to Harvard as invoices, and they didn't get and they didn't get fired. They, I don't, I, I don't know if they got fired or not. At least <laughs> I don't, I don't have the outcome of that. Whether like it never made the papers, as you can understand, these <laughs> yeah. things, you know, you don't want people to know outside of your four walls what's going on. All your dirty laundry. So. It, it's best for an organization to keep a pretty tight lid on the outcomes of this and not have it being reported to the to the yeah. press. Um, as you can see, there's a problem. As you can understand, there's probably a lot of reputational risk involved with this. Indeed. So, but as you share as you share stories here, I'm going to kind of keep track as we go. So, your first story was around um, different ways of looking at: are we paying? Are we are we paying invoices twice? Now we're looking for. Um, invoices that may have been fraudulent or in other ways inappropriate because of keywords in that in that invoice. Yeah, absolutely. So keywords is a is a great way of identifying those suspicious invoices. Um, another way, great way that, of looking um, for bribes too, by the way, uh, and other sorts of, Ill, of other sorts of illicit activity beyond just beyond just bleeding cash and bad payments to internal fraud. 
Absolutely. So beyond internal fraud, there's also uh, bribery and corruption, uh, which is a good segue into what one other customer which was doing. And I, and this is a really interesting use case of, of, of data is that they came to me, um, it was a consumer and industrial products manufacturer, about $20 billion worth of revenue. And they came to me one day and said, Hey, I really like what you've been doing around our invoice analytics. We have all of the uh, procurement data and, 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 and payables data that we're analyzing. Can we run our payables data through the Paradise Papers leak to see if we've got any matches against the Paradise Papers? And uh, so for those of you who aren't familiar with the Paradise Papers, about two years ago, uh, there was a pretty large um, data leak of this um, this law firm's data from the um, from the from the Caribbean, where um, many people, individuals, entities, um, I think like royal royalty was flagged on there. Perhaps, of state. perhaps more well known as the Panama Papers, eh? Yeah, well, the Panama Papers um, is was a sp- one one of the Paradise Papers leaks. Right. Uh, Paradise Papers includes uh, Panama Papers and uh, various other um, leaks from the Caribbean as well. Um, but yeah, a bunch of these um, individuals and entities were implicated in these leaks. And so this organization wanted to run their uh, accounts payable data, their vendors and third parties um, against this um, data set to see if they matched any of the addresses that were on there. Yeah, interesting. Because of this uh, enormous data leak, there was a now a whole list of addresses which we are, are presumptively belong to business entities that are being used for illicit purposes um, because they were being kept secret in the Caribbean and all these sorts of things. And, uh, and now you are basically saying, how do we now compare our whole payables ledger to the, to the based on address to the business entities in this leaked data? Yeah, either address or name, exactly. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean if you get a hit that you have an instance of fraud, but now you've got as an audit team or as a risk or a compliance team or a finance team, you've got a small set of results for you to perform further due diligence on to make sure that those invoices and, and entities and individuals that you're paying, um, are appropriate. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And so, um, tell me a little bit more. So yeah. The lesson learned Where did here this is go? that, yeah, don't don't just rely on the data that you have. You'll want to bring in data sources from the outside. Um, so Paradise Papers Lake is one. Um, another is to bring in data from uh, third-party um, services like Dun & Bradstreet um, or, or other um, information databases. Um, you, can, you have um, the U.S. government publishes um, a SAM list, what they call as the SAM list, which includes all of the um, sanctioned individual in, individuals and entities across all of their um, all of the federal government agencies from OFAC to um, the Environmental Protection Agency, Department of Energy, every, anyone who's got some, somebody that they, you shouldn't be doing business with is, is on this list that you can use. And so, um, in this particular case, did you actually incorporate all that—the Paradise Papers, the the government blacklists, et cetera, et cetera? Oh yeah, you bet. So, 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 when we run the data against all these different data sources, you don't want to do it in piecemeal. You don't want to do it against this set, and that. You want to do one massive 
check against all of these different sources and then raise the red flags once so that the uh, team can review and, and perform their due diligence. Indeed. And so that's a pretty big, a pretty big analytical undertaking. But let me ask you this. What was the, the what was the impetus for this? Was it to, was it to uh, find and, and, and prevent uh, cash leaks or was it primarily for purpose? Was it in response to a, uh, a bribery or some other kind of illicit uh, case that had occurred internally? Was it an investigation? What, what leads, what, what motivated um, doing this? The, I, th- I think what motivated, I, I don't think there was any internal motivation around this. It was motivated around, at that time, the Paradise Papers and the Panama Papers outcome were of general Outcome of general risk assessment. Exactly. It was an outcome of general risk assessment around reputational risk. But ultimately, it, there was, once, it's, once it's been set up and, and turned on, um, there's, there's really no additional effort into it. You just run your ledger through the data set and see what falls out the other end of it. Yeah, indeed. And, uh, I uh, another uh, another organization we work with. I had uh, gotten involved with to help. They actually wanted to run exactly this kind of testing, uh, not the Paradise Papers, but indeed the d- various government blacklists and things like that, and actually check payments before wire transfers were made. So this this actually happened before every Swift uh, wire before it hit the Swift system and the wire would go out to prevent uh, and catch ahead of time before going out any payments that that had uh, that had these kinds of hits. So that goes back to um, potentially turning this into a control as well that not only demonstrates the efficacy of an anti-bribery, anti-corruption program, but also can serve as as financial controls for, for audits and actually, as opposed to having to come back and find the cash later, um, preventing, uh, s- stopping suspect payment before it ever goes out in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And the other lesson here is around incorporating data from third-party sources. Um, and so looping in data from, say, uh, the Google um, the, the, the Google location and geolocation APIs to get an understanding of whether, for example, a zip code um, and an address is a business location or is it a residential location. Mm-hmm. Um, it's looping in your census data. So you can grab U.S. census data, for example, and understand, hey, is this zip code a, a, a business location or is it, again, a, a residential, um, largely a residential area? And so you can, you can bring in all of these different data sources to support your, um, your, your, your potential suspicious. That even in and of itself is an interesting one, right? If I'm a materials manufacturer and all the places I'm buying materials from and suddenly it strikes a, a residential address, I'm probably not buying, uh, I'm probably not buying copper for input into my manufacturing process from somebody's house in New Jersey. Exactly. Exactly. So definitely some things that you wouldn't necessarily think of right away because this is data that's coming from outside of your organization. You want to, and at the risk of sounding uh, at the risk of sounding promotional, like what's the path to do this if I've not if I've not done it before? So I I don't even know where to go find the OFAC list or where to how to hit a a, a Google API. Do we have? Uh, um, this, I suppose, is a leading question, but what's the tools and help that Galvanize can provide to help accelerate some of that kind of work? So even in sharing these stories, this is kind of work that we've done with organizations time and time again. So we have plenty of scripts already built out to pull in the government uh, sanction lists, for mm-hmm. example, um, or scripts to hit the Google, uh, Google Distance APIs. Um, 
we have the Paradise Papers data well prepared already. Um, we have um, the U.S. Um, uh, as I mentioned, the U.S. sanction list, but also um, the 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 any other any other data that we were just mentioning as well. We've we've already got that in the in our uh, organization and can leverage that very quickly in our implementations. Okay, tell me another good story. Cool. Um, another story is around um, how about how about this hospital? So um, this hospital, of course, um, hospitals, of course, today are a key front line and key um, important um, part of our, our defense against COVID. But um, one of the things that uh, that uh, that they do a lot of is a lot of purchasing. So they'll bring in. Um, um, you know, PPE materials, drugs, um, and, uh, and a, a lot of these come from a lot of different medical equipment, uh, providers and manufacturers. Um, and there's a lot of complexity there. Um, things come in different packages in different units, um, and get charged. Um, and, and, and a lot of times the, the charges for these can get lost in the way. Um, and so this hospital came to me with this problem of, Hey, we've got tens of thousands of different vendors that we purchase things from we have no idea of whether or not or actually there were some instances that they had where they were being price gouged on particular um surgical equipment and and and, th and consumable equipment because what had happened was this vendor was selling them and at a contract price of of say you know a thousand dollars per box or whatever and what they did was they changed the the units of measure. So instead of getting say a hundred pieces in that box, they only got fifty pieces in that box or ten pieces in mm. that box. And so what happened was that the, even though the the price on the invoice didn't change, the price per unit just skyrocketed uh, because they were getting a lot less in any particular um, case. And so to identify these, we had to conduct some price analysis and outlier detection on 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 pricing. Yeah, and so when you say outlier detection, that sound, that's starting to sound complicated again. But the it, 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 it's really not that difficult, right? So by like you said, breaking down breaking down pricing to a per unit basis, and then comparing that statistically to what all the other units you've ever paid for cost, um, can actually pretty quickly identify where where we're overpaying for materials, huh? Yeah, exactly. So if your if your typical cost for a scalpel per unit is $5, say. Um, and there's a range to that. So it's not always going to be $5. Sometimes it can be $4.50. Sometimes it can be $6. But if you get a scalpel that on a per unit cost costs you $50, right. somewhere along the line, there's either a mistake or an error or or price gouging. I will tell you, I have seen this happen in government at scales that are almost hard to even believe um, how much the price variance that governments will pay for things have uh, emerged. But similarly, very, very large manufacturer of, um, uh, maybe I better not say, very, very large, one of the largest manufacturing companies in the world, but they were uh, doing the same. And basically, uh, they would negotiate global contracts with some of these suppliers to purchase at a certain price. But then what they what happened was, is they had other business units, because this is an incredibly large international organization, that business unit A 
negotiated this global price for the overall parent company at price A, um, but business unit B, when they went along and right hand didn't know about the left hand, and of course, conveniently, the vendor didn't tell them, oh, hey, you have a global contract at the parent company level that says pricing is price A, turned around and gave them price B. Um, and of course, actually, this then multiplied across many other business units, C, D, E, F, G. And the the pricing that they were paying in different parts of the world for the same component was varying widely because of, the again, the internal complexity of ERP systems. And of course, the ERP system in business unit A doesn't talk to the ERP system in business unit B um, to for those kinds of automated controls to work. Um, and so the vendor was actually looked to them, the same vendor, but looked like a dozen different vendors, um, and all of which are charging all of which are charging prices above the globally contracted price. So we're not getting the the power of of pricing efficiency. Yeah, and that's that makes total sense. And and, and in your case, you even had a global um, price the um, uh, price contract, um, but with the hospital, there were a lot of these where. Um, they didn't even have a, a standardized price list for how much they should be charged for certain things. And that's where this outlier analysis was so powerful because you didn't have to know the price of any particular item. You just had to know what you actually paid for each item and you could look for outliers uh, on those, yep. on those statistically yep. identified prices. Yep. Absolutely. Um, okay. Really interesting. And um, any other it, what other key lessons do you tell me one or one or two more stories? What's what other key lessons have you learned along the way? Yeah, just a, <laughs> here's a here's a silly one. Um, so I was working with a business services company, and I I was working for them for a few months, and suddenly the 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 you know I was working with at the staff and 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 manager level, um, but I was I got pretty close with them, and they they told me, hey, you know the so-and-so the chief audit executives now gone. Um, they're going to be replaced with somebody else, but, um, yeah, by the way, our, the analytics that we put together, uh, we detected some unscrupulous activity by our chief audit executive. And, uh, we had to, we had to figure out how to report that internally and get it sorted out because normally you would report that to the chief audit executive. Uh oh, This sounds like, this sounds like T and E expenses as opposed to payments. It is. It is T and E expenses. Um, I had to throw this one in there because it was too good. Um, this <laughs> chief audit executive was using business travel to attend football games. Um, the analytics that we had set up um, didn't detect it directly, but had led to un- other red flags for the chief audit executive around. Um, you know, s- um, all of their expenses were being routed through their executive admin as opposed to them doing it themselves and getting the appropriate approval. And so their expenses were identified and looked at that had a ton of travel to cities where they didn't have offices and the timing of everything lined up with uh, football games and and other sporting events that uh, the CAE was attending. And uh, yeah, they, they got let go. 
Oh my goodness. So that opens up a whole new can of worms, which is uh, a, another fine cash pass, fine cash fast path, uh, travel and entertainment expenses in general. In this case, it sounds like it was identified through a, a, a variety of different patterns, including um, including travel to places where there aren't offices, things like that. Um, but across the board in, in T&E in general, there's, there's, again, dozens and dozens and dozens of ways to find uh, unnecessary expenses going out right yeah absolutely and and but of course in today's climate there's probably going to be a lot less of business travel altogether today being we're recording this while we're all on self-isolation during covid19 but broadly speaking uh go back a couple of years and you'll find plenty of tne losses yeah absolutely um i just wanted to bring one more item here um to the table around um benford's law benford's law yeah, this sounds complicated, but it's it's really not. Um, there was a, an equipment manufacturer that we were working with, and they actually identified a $5 million fraud right within the first couple of weeks of running data analytics. They identified a maintenance manager um, receiving kickbacks from a vendor for creating fictitious invoices and approving them. Um, so there was a, a collusion, corruption case. Um, and this had been going on for many years. And how it was identified was that they had always used the same invoice amount. And the invoice amount was an unusual set of digits, forty like $4,700. Um, and what happened was that, that in performing a Benford's Law analysis test, there's a huge spike at that digit level. I think we have to explain Benford's Law, don't we, Dan? Probably do. Okay, so to take a a step back, Benford's Law talks about how natural numbers have a pattern to the starting digits. Whenever you have a a set of invoices or even your tax returns, any set of natural numbers, you're going to expect the leading digit to be one about 30% of the time. Right. Which is really unusual because you would think, oh, hey, one, there's 10 digits should be 10% of the time, but in reality, it's 30% of the time. And that's because of the, the way that as numbers grow, um, going from a, a first digit being one to a first digit being two is a much bigger percentage difference than going from two to three or three to four or five to six. So for example, going from 100 to 200, that's a like a 100% increase. But going from 900 to 1,000 is like a 10% increase. Exactly. So, so yeah. lower numbers so, occur more often in numbers. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So this is one, if you're ever wanting to do income tax fraud and evasion, uh, make sure that you run <laughs> your numbers on go. your income tax through Benford's Advice law. for Phil M on how to cheat on your taxes. Absolutely. Um, so going back to Benford's Law, th- this organization ran all their invoices through Benford's Law. And not only can you do Benford's Law for the first digit, but it also works for the second digit and the third digit and fourth digit as well. You'll see the exact same pattern for uh, the subsequent digits. And so typically what we'll do is we'll run Benford's Law for a two-digit analysis. And so this company, when we ran their AP invoices through Benford's Law, had a huge spike at number 47, way above what would have been normal for uh, a typical set of 
AP invoices. Which is actually and really so, easy to do in, in our tool or others. Um, running a whole bunch of data through Benford's Law is super simple. You basically push the Benford button and follow the instructions. Exactly. And then you get this nice little curved graph and then spikes in that graph. Yeah. And essentially you drill into those spikes. And in this case, this equipment manufacturer saw this huge spike at Benford's Law digit 47. And when they drilled into it, they saw a whole bunch of invoices with the same vendor, same requisitioner, same manager. I was like, whoa, hold on. This is going <laughs> back many years. What's going on here? Turned out that this manager was receiving kickbacks from this uh, vendor to create these fictitious invoices for him to approve. Of course. Well, that, so that was a whole series of them. So, so finding cash fast, duplicate payments, um, Elicit invoices found with keywords using Benford analysis to find to find cases of to find cases of fraud, um, abuse of of T and E policies. You you've hit on a bunch here. Um, can I add one or two real quick before we go? Yeah, go for it. So I had a uh, state government that I used to work with quite a bit. They uh, sent out entitlement payments for all kinds of things, from Medicaid to Medicaid to food stamps to all VA benefits, all sorts of other stuff. And um, they had centralized all of those entitlement payments through one sort of payment system um, for the state, and that payment system always struggled. It was a custom built, very expensive uh, payment system. So one of the things we did is in convincing this organization that perhaps there probably were some issues here, we did a very simple test. We compared all of the entitled payments that went out to a third party set of data that seems very simple to do, which was the list of dead people in the state. And we compared based on, again, a cleaned up version, normalized version of their social security number and found uh, well into the uh, well into the eight digits in basically three hours, one afternoon uh, dollars that had gone out uh, in entitlement payments to dead people. Seems like it would be impossible for that to happen, but it turns out it's not. Somebody dies if the controls aren't in place to get that shut off. Checks go out. Somebody with a shared bank account that still has that person's name on the bank account goes to the bank and deposits a check. Um, sure enough, lots of entitlement payments that um, that are uh, it made inappropriately and that the state can save uh, save cash on. So again, simple example like yours, Phil, of just consider some outside data and just enough creativity to ask the question, um, do we really have controls to check for something like this? Like when somebody dies, do we stop their, um, do we stop their name your benefit payment? Yeah, and you usually don't know about these until, until hindsight. You're smart enough to ask the question and then you follow down that rabbit hole and then at the other end of it, and you're like, "Oh yeah, we should have, we should have seen this coming." <laughs> uh, indeed. So, a thousand other stories, but we probably save those for probably save uh, save those for another episode. I'll just wrap up on a, a T and E one myself. Uh, I worked for a large mutual fund company that was uh, doing T and E analytics, uh, akin to what you described there with um, with the uh, chief audit executive. And of course, the thing about mutual fund companies is they have very highly paid fund managers uh, that manage uh, that manage individual uh, that manage the individual 
individual funds for different uh, different risk portfolios and that sort of thing. And um, this organization had tend to have large institutional buyers of some of these funds, and uh, there were um, often, for example, things like golf trips to Mexico inside the uh, inside the travel and entertainment for these large institutional buyers. Whether that was on site or off is a is a debate for another day. But it turns out that if you use the analytics carefully, you can figure out um, exactly. Uh, exactly who was expensing stuff in a certain location at a given time, like, say, Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. And I see four or five different people, including the chief investment officer, are, are submitting expenses at a given time in that in that location. Then I look at the total amount, uh, the total ex, uh, expense amount, um, and basically able to pretty quickly identify that there's the expenses. If there's five people down there and the expenses cover five people, where exactly is the client that was supposedly taken on this trip? Um, and so indeed there was a number of these sorts of golf events, um, and other places, including ones where the name of the expense had been, had been changed to what we've later discovered were strip clubs that these five gentlemen enjoyed their, their golf outings and, and, and strip club adventures uh, to the tune of a very large sum of money uh, that you could imagine. In this case, the, uh, the, the uh, fund accounting team that had identified these, uh, that identified the burn in these expenses um, was very nervous to speak with the CEO and the chief investment officer about this behavior, but indeed um, thousands upon thousands of dollars in, in, uh, in uh, recovery. And like you, I don't know the employee action that was taken, but, um, but actually pretty easy to find if you just go looking. That's the key. Got to look. We'll find if you don't look. So how do we get started, Phil? If I want to, if I want to um, take some of these and just say, hey, I want to, basically, I want to get started for the first time. I want to find cash fast. I'll build out more of a program after that, but I need to show results. How do I get started quickly? Great that you asked that, Dan. We have just put together a brand new quick start package called the cost control quick start package. Essentially, we've taken the 18 most quick win analytics that you could possibly get across duplicate invoices and suspicious invoices. We've kept this small and simple. You only have to bring two data sets, your invoices and your vendors. You give us the data and we'll give you the results. And you can continue to run these, these analytics um, quarter over quarter or month after month or week after week if you want to do it at that frequency. And you'll continue to get those results into your system and at the end of it, you'll have the software to expand your program to other areas like P-card monitoring, tax compliance, procurement controls, conflicts of interest. But to start with, duplicate invoices and suspicious invoices across the areas that we were talking about today. Um, so to this is started. like, if I'm out of shape, don't overthink it. Just go to the gym and get on the elliptical machine. You'll lose weight. That's right. That's so, right. You don't have to worry about the full program. Just start with just going to the gym first. And okay. And if I'm an organization that doesn't do this today, how likely am I to find, um, to find cash fast with these 18 analytics? Um, and, and at least enough to justify me, uh, expanding out and developing a, this into a program. Almost guaranteed. 
And I say that because every, like you said, like we started with today, every time we've done this, we've found stuff, even with customers and, and, um, and companies that had cost recovery vendors. So you're familiar with these types of yeah, services? Yeah, I wanted to go here because, in fact, um, I'd played some games in the past where I even tried to do some consulting engagements this way, and it was a it, it, for me it was a really bad idea. But, but um, to be clear, there are vendors that will that will do this sort of thing. Um, uh, well, you describe where you were going with that on cost recovery vendors. Yeah, exactly. So essentially, you give your data to these cost recovery services or vendors. And they'll go and they'll look through it. They'll run their own data analytics program through it. And then they'll call up any of these potential duplicates or, or errors or fraud and try and recover the, recover the money for you. And really, they just take a cut of whatever money they can recover. But that's bad for a lot of different reasons. Uh, the primary one is that their incentives are not aligned with yours. Um, and that's... If they... If you get better at detecting this stuff and adjust your processes, they make less money. So they're incentivized to keep you in the dark about the findings and how they found right, it. Right, totally. It's like a being a it's like a debt collection firm. I have a bunch of bad debts and I say, "Okay, I'm tired of chasing these. I'm just going to give it to a debt collection firm and I'll get whatever I get back and they'll take their cut." Um, that's fine. That's one way to go, but it doesn't mean you ever learn how to quit extending bad credit in the first place. This exactly. Is, this You're is, not managing the risk. Yeah. This is the exact same idea um, is this kind of a quick start package will help you identify what almost certainly those kinds of cost re- recovery vendors were going to identify anyway. But more importantly, once I've, once I've done some working out on the elliptical machine, I now understand, okay, I lost some weight, but now perhaps if I add some weight training and I add the exercise bike, uh, I can keep the weight off and never have to go to this place in the first place. I don't know. Exactly. That was probably a bad analogy, but because it's a terrible you said analogy, it- especially the way we started <laughs> with cutting out your gym memberships. But in this case, You've already got your gym membership, and so move from the elliptical elliptical machine and onto all of the other things that the gym offers. Okay, very good. And anything anything else you want to cover, uh, Phil, on this topic before we before we uh, wrap up today? No, that's it. I had one closing thought around machine learning, but I I kind I kind of don't want to talk about it right now. We did quite an excellent session on the last episode with uh, Kevin Legere on using uh, using machine learning for anomaly detection, particularly for for fraud identification. So I imagine you were leaning into the same sort of thing that we only can be we this only progresses further when we're able to use machine learning because we may be able to do this without having to identify every hard rule up front. There's um, that. I mean, there's that. But the 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 key nugget that I wanted to bring the table is whenever you take a machine learning course, whenever you learn about the algorithms and, and all that, there's all these, everyone's telling anyone who's teaching machine learning tells you, oh, hey, you have to avoid biases. You have to understand what the model's doing. You have to do all this stuff to make sure that your machine learning model is good. The prediction doesn't have to be perfect in our use cases because right. you're not using the machine learning's outcome to actually drive the effect. You're just using it to point. It's using it as a tool to point you in the right direction. So you're still going to do your manual due diligence on top of what machine learning algorithms detect for you. 
So I, that's just a parting thought that I would have when it comes to using machine learning for fraud detection. And right. The rule-based analytics aren't, aren't foolproof either, even when you understand exactly what they do. They're indicating, hey, here's a, here's a, place, here's a place to look. Um, exactly. It doesn't automate away your job. It just makes you that much, it's a force multiplier, makes you that much more effective. Excellent. Well, thank you, Phil. I still don't know if I believe that you're the, the world's greatest ACL Robotics scripter, but uh, we'll, we'll uh, save that for a future episode. In the meantime, thank you for sharing all of the wisdom on how to uh, point such skill toward finding cash fast. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Phil. See you, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this week's Office Hours. Make sure to visit wegalvanize.com for free resources to help you deliver better enterprise governance. See you next time.